0: section of um, several episodes of the Anatomy Cupboard. Uh, this is basically the introduction to the artist and the anatomist, that covenant really between artist and anatomist in the demonstration of dissection. The introduction is entitled The Science and Spectacle of Anatomy. But I'll outline the three ongoing sections of uh, this part of the anatomy cupboard. I'll start, if I can, with a small um, quote from John Donne's The the Ecstasy. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak men on love revealed may look, Love's mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. The anatomy of the human body and the artistry of its progressive dissection are inextricably linked. The dissected body, as distinct from the nude, has historically been a model for artists, some of whom came to view the formal examination of corpses, as an essential prerequisite for the advancement of their art. Leonardo da Vinci dissected dead bodies for their own sake, drawing his impressions of these examinations in a systematic way that supported his personalised theory of how the body was internally constructed. These talks um, explore the interface between anatomist and artist, over dissection of the corpse. It assesses their mutual influence in describing the process of dissection and the evolution of a style of its illustrative representation. And beyond this technical consideration, we'll explore how the dead body and its dismembered parts became one motif of public museum display. For the last 500 years, the study and understanding of the anatomy of the human body has been traditionally positioned around dissection of cadavers. Medical students, surgeons, dentists, many other paramedical disciplines could only obtain this important knowledge by a close encounter with a dead body. Contemporary dissections represent the accumulated wisdom of these previous techniques, the methods and curriculum initiated and developed for how to open and dismantle a cadaver, and which are in some ways still practised today, represent the historical legacy of iconic anatomists who, like the explorers of new worlds, sought to discover through dissection the terra incognita of the interior body. I suppose that it's not really unreasonable to question whether some can actually lay claim to discovering something that of course has always been there. The 16th century anatomists Gabriel Fallopio and Rialdo Colombo had as an example both fought over the discovery, if we can call it that, of the clitoris. As Jacqueline Duffin, a Canadian haematologist and historian, has asserted, quote, the The body is not simply a human continent waiting to be explored. And she says that in her book, The Fabricated Body in History uh, of Anatomy, The History of Medicine, a scandalously short introduction put out by the University of Toronto Press uh, in 1999. Dissection as a process, however, largely lay dormant between the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginnings of the Renaissance. Its revivification, if we could call it that, was initiated by particular stalwarts, Mondino de Luzzi in the early 14th century, who established the basic order of dissection, and Andreas Vesalius um, in the 16th century, who described the structure of the different body systems. Now both of these men, along with many others, inaugurated and reinforced a particular artistry to dissection. Anatomy was initially included amongst the natural philosophies and linked to the philosophers and the metaphysicians who were principally concerned with dissecting and describing human nature. After William Harvey, in the early part of the 17th century, introduced the notion of experimentation an empirical observation by describing the circulation of the blood in humans and animals, there was the advent of an entirely novel and formal scientific method which was potentially capable of examining and explaining earthly and celestial phenomena. Harvey conducted a series of bleeding experiments using tourniquets, but most dramatically he demonstrated the connection between the circulation and the rhythmic contractions of the heart, by cutting the aorta of a live restrained dog in the main lecture hall in Padua, showering the front row of his audience with its pulsating blood. His techniques and experimental method were published in his Exercitatio de motu cordis et sanguinis in Animalibus, which was published in 1628. Anatomy too was incorporated under this rubric then of the burgeoning new sciences, and so rather than describing human nature as the metaphysicians had done, anatomy became one of the explanators of nature itself. By the early 16th century, the conduct of anatomy in many European cities moved from private enclaves of study and discovery to the public squares, not just those studying the minutiae of dissection, but now members of the general public could come and witness the dissection of corpses frequently performed by a designated anatomist who was contracted by the city or the university to complete a requisite formal anatomization, as it was called, at least once a year. These open forum anatomizations were conducted on those criminals already sentenced for execution, where in many countries royal assent was provided for the judges to exercise the discretion of adding the ignominious sentence of post-mortem dissection to that of execution for a capital offence. These public spectacles were very popular, attracting the clergy, city officials and burghers, politicians, advocates, writers and artists. Indeed, artists and Scientists were even more enmeshed in some places as early as 1297, the Guild of Florence, for example, could register artisans in town along with physicians, surgeons, apothecaries, midwives, herbalists, distillers, undertakers, booksellers and silk merchants. Bologna had an established tradition of public dissections controlled by their university to which artists were often officially invited. All the while, dissection maintained a distinct connection with art and artisans, many of the anatomists gaining a particular reputation for their powerful and flamboyant performances, which were conducted sometimes with great and exacting delicateness, and at other times with a brutal savagery. The journalist Christine Quigley in her Dissection on Display, Cadavers, Anatomists, and Public Spectacle, which is published by MacFarland in 2012, uses the word spectacle to include, quote, a public display or performance intended to impress the audience with its scale or its extravagance. Anatomizations in open-air piazzas or in church venues became such a, a developed such a following that dedicated bricks and mortar buildings called Theatre Anatomia were purpose-built for shows of human dissection. These uh, were constructed in Padua in 1594 or in Pisa in 1569, Ferrara in 1588, Montpellier in the same year, Basel in 1589, Bologna in 1636 and London in the same year, 1636. Uh, that one designed by Inigo Jones. Dissection was a source of research and the international standing of a school or university was enhanced by the cult of personality that coalesced around some of these very prominent anatomists. This was particularly the case in London for John Hunter in the 18th century and his brother William Hunter, as well as for the Edinburgh Medical School, which was established by Alexander Monroe in the early uh, 18th century. He was known as Primus, his son Alexander referred to as Secundus and his grandson as the uh, Munro Tertius. For the late 17th century and early 18th century Amsterdam and Leiden were strong attractants for overseas students wishing to learn anatomy with the schools dominated by city dissectors who were called the Praelectors Anatomiae. In Amsterdam, Friedrich Reich was prelector for more than 60 years. He lived from 1638 to 1731. And Goverd Bidloo, around the same time, 1649 to 1713, not living as long, the rector of Leiden University, was also its head of anatomy. And both headed the faculties that were the leading European centres for the study of anatomy through the 18th century. Before the beginnings of the Renaissance, anatomy as a discrete discipline of study was, however, a rather sterile subject. It was largely not practised, but instead its principal tenets were recalled by recitations from canonical textbooks. Its precepts were transmitted to students and practitioners by reading and by repetition, much in the same way as the theologians of the time taught the Gospels. The equivalent hallowed texts of anatomy were those of the Greek physician Claudius Galen who lived from 129 to 216 AD along with the works of Aristotle and Plato that had referred to the examination and the ordering of the body interior. But the findings of Aristotle and Galen had been based upon animal dissections and vivisections only neither man had ever dissected a single human being, rather inferring the human anatomy from their experience dissecting animals. Galen, in particular, favoured dissection of the Barbary ape, the Macaca Silvianus, writing that its examination was an essential prerequisite for any practising surgeon. The fledgling Catholic Church, through its 3rd century scholastics, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose and St. Augustine, constructed a theological view of man and his anatomy as a microcosm of a larger macrocosmic universe, fusing pagan dicta with early Christian thought. And in this environment, many anatomy halls were filled with pious dissectors who made every effort to reconcile what they found in their dissections with the prevailing dogma of the Church. The Belgian anatomist, Vesalius, was one of the first to challenge this dogma, deciding in a revolutionary way to confirm or refute Galenic thought by dissecting the human body for himself. And in so doing, he discovered a myriad of areas where the dissected human body did not correlate with the conventional wisdom, notating these discordant findings in his 1543 book The Fabrica Humani Corporis, The Fabric of the Human Body. And uh, this was published in the same year, if one can think of it in that way, as the De revolutionibus orbium celestium by Nicholas Copernicus, and that proposed a heliocentric universe where the Earth orbited the Sun rather than the prevailing reverse geocentric view with the Earth at the universal centre. The Fabrica Humani Corporis became the most important anatomical textbook for the next 250 years, instantly converting the teaching of anatomy from a handed-down tradition of didactic lectures that sanctified the ancient written word, then into a visual discipline. And with this sensory shift, anatomy transformed into a teachable, hands-on craft centred around first seeing and then doing. Reinforcing the visual nature of dissection, Vesalius had invited the prominent artist Jan Steffen van Kalker into the stench of the anatomy room to create a series of woodcuts that depicted the progressive dissections of the body. Although these were not the first anatomical illustrations made, it was the first time where the systematic dissection of the corpse was recorded in progressive and spectacular images. Vesalius took advantage of the recent invention of the printing press to disseminate his work, his book, achieving instant fame throughout Europe, as much for its imagery as for its textual detail. It became also an impetus for many artists who were already attracted to anatomy to use dissection as a means to improve their artistic expression without any capacity to preserve bodies by illustrating the relevant anatomy Artists could also provide some permanency for these ephemeral sections. and artist over the common ground of the cadaver. The result was for the anatomists to produce their territorial mapping of the body as definitive atlases that were illustrated by professional painters who were individually sought for their skill in perfectly rendering the findings at dissection. The popularity and success of these books Was substantially enhanced by the novelty and precision these artists could reproduce in their accompanying pictures. Today, many of these images, despite their inherent beauty, seem antiquated. Apart from conveying anatomical information, these illustrations were also vehicles that transmitted allegorical or overtly religious messaging. Some used gallows humour to signal the deep class divide that existed between the dissected and the dissector. Portrayals of the corpse and its decay and dissection were overlain with moralistic homilies written into the picture. The dead body and its dissection were exploited as memento mori, the vanitous theme of subliminal imagery, reminding viewers of the brevity of life, the sanctity of the body and of the constant need for penitence. Artists employed the vanitous symbolism from other genres of painting to convey these concealed messages. The ephemeral nature of existence was epitomised by the mayfly, which lived for a single day, or sometimes one would see in a picture an extinguished candle, rotten or putrefying fruit, food infested with insects, or the presence of timepieces. Death was typically denoted by a skull, and most of the public viewing such images were well versed in these motifs, in a way they are not today. In amongst all of this were those great artists like Antonio Paolo Wallo, Luca Signorelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo Buonarroti and Vincenzo Dante, who each took up the scalpel and dissected the human body for themselves. Most of these artists who dissected bodies did so in a very limited manner. Their interest was not in the mechanics of the body, but rather in its muscle definition, what is called its myology, and in realistically portraying in their paintings and sculptures how the muscles appeared and behaved during movement. The biographer and pupil of Michelangelo, Ascanio Condivi, wrote that his master had a principal interest in, quote, anatomia esteriore, external anatomy. This is somewhat debated by the chronicler of the book, the 1550 book, The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, Giorgio Vasari, even though both Vasari and Condivi often contradicted one another in their writings specifically about Michelangelo. Models of the skinned body, called écorchés after the French for peeled, were instrumental tools that were used for artistic learning. Often these little models were made from wax or wood, ivory, and even wool. And these created an opportunity to better define the way the muscles and sinews pulled upon the skin without the need for grisly dissections. These little replicas were the favourite sculpting tools of Michelangelo who twisted them into foreshortened positions and who used them for his Sistine Chapel frescoes, the so-called contrapposto position. Leonardo on the other hand, in dissecting over 30 bodies throughout his life and notating his incremental findings in his private anatomical folia, he became obsessed with how form influenced function. Leonardo stood alone, sometimes in secret, systematically examining and drawing the internal organs of humans and animals. He dissected the body out of curiosity, and in the case of the eye and the optic nerves leading back from the retina to the brain, in an effort to appreciate visual mechanics. In so doing, he frequently argued in public what he called his paragona, his comparisons that were made between the different genres of the mechanical arts as they were known then, and for this he used a Socratic style of debate in which he would claim the supremacy of the visual experience afforded by any painting over the senses needed, for example, to perceive sculpture or architecture or to appreciate music or even poetry. Leonardo's dimostrazioni, his demonstrations, which fill his notebooks, are his attempts at practical examples, experiments and thoughts which were designed to explain natural phenomena and how painting could best emulate nature. They were there to explain the lingering visual experience in the appreciation of great art, and such enjoyment could only, he felt, be offered by painting and not by either a a tactile stimulation from a sculpture or the transient memory provoked by a piece of music. He privately recorded his impressions using physical methods in his examinations to explain observable organic phenomena, and that work really predating by some 200 years the birth of the science of physiology. The specialised and highly competitive atmosphere surrounding many anatomists kindled a particular enthusiasm for collecting all manner of specimens, ranging from the prosaic to the rare. Anatomical museums exhibiting surgical curiosities, congenital malformations and the organic effects of the ravages of common and lethal diseases like syphilis sprung up in the 18th century in London and around Europe. And many dissectors had extensive collections of skulls and skeletons, which had been disinterred from sacred indigenous grave sites and bartered from botanists and medical men who'd travelled to the New World with the great navigators. Examples of these include the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, started in 1884 with a private skull collection, about 22,000 archaeological artefacts, which has now been expanded to 130,000 and which was originally amassed by General Augustus Pitt Rivers, um, who lived between 1827 and 1900. A similar collection of 139 ordered skulls, the Hertel skulls, named after its collector, can be found in the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. And the obsession with obtaining the skulls of Australian Aboriginals and New Zealand Maoris is expertly outlined in Helen MacDonald's Human Remains, Dissection and Its Histories, published by Yale University Press in 2006. And a more light-hearted view can be found in Francis Larson's Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found, published by Live Right Publishing uh, in New York in 2014. Before Charles Darwin articulated his theory of evolution and the origin of the species, skull-collecting naturalists like Johann Friedrich Blumenbach used craniometric and facial measurements not only to define what was considered human as opposed to simian, but also to create a hierarchy of race where such recordings signified an ethnic intelligence and social development. Craniometric measurements were the forerunners of social anthropology, but they were also used by the Philadelphia naturalist Samuel Morton in his 1839 Crania Americana and his 1844 Crania Egyptica to impose a kind of divine design on human development. These assessments also spawned the bunk of phrenology, the assessment of temperament and personality, by feeling the bumps on the head which was popularised by Franz Joseph Gaul, who lived between 1755 and 1828, and by his disciple, uh, Johann Caspar Spurzheim, who lived from 1776 to 1832. And they both promoted a so-called doctrine of the skull, a Schadlere, as it was called in German. Craniometry, as determined by anatomists, was also used by the Italian criminologist, Cesare Lombroso who lived from 1835 to 1909 to identify the physiognomonic features of a typical criminal or as well a genius uh, interesting books uh, the so-called l'uomo delinquente by Cesare uh, Lombroso published in uh, 1876 and also his l'uomo del genio the man of genius in 1891. 18th century embalming experts like Friedrich Reich and Honoré Fragonard were not averse to using the preserved dissections of adult humans, babies and animals as the centrepieces of complex moralistic and biblical dioramas. In the case of Reich, those who attended such displays were provided with Little printed moralising messages that constantly reinforced those vanitous themes which I spoke about that could also be found in Amsterdam's private art collections. On the outskirts of Paris at the Alfort Veterinary School, Fragonard displayed complete preserved human bodies, choreographed and mounted onto embalmed horses and surrounded by mummified infants and fetuses, It was considered so shocking the Parliament de Paris invoked a 1712 statute that ensured that his pieces could only be viewed during the daylight hours and then only the exhibits from which, quote, the natural parts had been removed. That statute was enacted specifically for lurid dissections which had previously been made by the anatomist and wax modeler Guillaume Deneuve. These museums vied with a profusion of anatomical waxworks and various freak shows exhibiting dwarves and giants, contortionists, bearded ladies, pinheads and albinos, in an era that was later described by the English literature professor Henry Morley as a time when the taste for monsters became a disease. In London, in setting up the British Museum and the Natural History Museum, their respective directors, Sir Hans Sloan and Sir Richard Owen, made the conscious decision to reject this style of anatomical presentation, with its emphasis on hideous, disfiguring anomalies, rather both presented to the public a narrative which highlighted the recent discovery of fossils and that celebrated human ethnography as a kind of evolution of mankind as an abreaction to the museums of anatomy, these became the more sanitised versions of what a public museum space should actually look like. And that's how museums, natural history museums, develop today. It's now more than 30 years since the German pathologist Gunther van Hagens introduced his technique of plastination, where the water content of human corpses is replaced by pressurised impregnation with a complex combination of polymers. Now These plastinates, as they're called, are dry to the touch and odourless and they have in many universities replaced a lot of the prosected specimens, revolutionising the way human materials are stored. Van Hagens has actually patented his um, uh, technique but also freely released um, the complex method of plastination which involves substituting normal tissue fluids for acetone to leach out soluble fats, after which the acetone is extracted and replaced with a combination of silicon rubber, epoxy resins and polyester resins by forcible vacuum impregnation. And he calls the whole-body plastinates the Guns-Copper plastinates, and as these are then positioned and gas-cured for hardening, This laborious technique will vary depending upon the species and the specimen age and the overall fat content. But in many universities, these plastinates have replaced the typical prosected specimens of human cadavers, which were kept in large tanks of formalin. Van Hagen's used the technique not only as a groundbreaking method of body preservation, but rather really to cross the art's anatomy divide, choreographing his pieces for public display into vivacious postures they might have had in life. Some plastinates were playing chess, others tossing a javelin, and still more engaged in necromantic intercourse. His show Body Worlds, Die körperwelten which was first exhibited in Osaka in 1995, has toured more than 50 countries and been seen by an estimated 35 million people, making it arguably the most successful show ever staged. Once more, the dead human body has resurfaced for public show. But it's more than some notation of human anatomy as an educational tool. The dissected body has been exhibited in part for the artistry of its dissection. The organs and the soft tissues have been paraded. in themselves presented as aesthetic pieces, somewhat deliberate and close emulations of the displays of those 18th century masters of anatomy like Fragonard and Reich, and in so doing the controversy raised with Van Hagen's about issues concerning the public exhibition of anatomy pieces and the privacy of his donors, as well as over consent, the provenance of the bodies, where they came from, and about whether they were displayed in poor taste. The exposure of dead bodies, particularly in Germany, also, I think, raised some recent historical spectres. But the 1990s also saw the re-stimulation of body art. The London show Sensation, introduced the British public to the young British artist movement, the YBA movement, and to artists like Damien Hurst and Mark Quinn, both of whom achieved a dizzying fame for their abilities to exploit dead tissues and body materials as integral parts um, of their art. Both of these artists, and many others who might even be labelled as artistes macabre, have used these installations to reframe our perception and fear of the dead. For a time at least, the exhibited body prompted a national conversation around our reactions to death itself. at opening bodies, but we are going to consider the origins of anatomy and its transformation into a discipline, along with the evolution of the craft and artistry of dissection. It's no coincidence that the reappearance of the dissection process after a millennium of dormancy was a renaissance endeavour, similar to painting, sculpture and architecture Imposing a renaissance spirit meant capturing the symmetry and proportions of ancient times and translating them into that modern era. The Latin aphorism inscribed in gold in the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, Nos te ipsum, know thyself, became the driving force for all anatomists. The dissected corpse served not only as the wellspring of scientific research but also as the battleground where philosophers debated the origins, structure and importance of man. For devout dissectors, the human body was the arena, not only to discern a cognitio sui, a knowledge of self, but also a cognitio dei, a knowledge of God. For agnostics and atheists, it was the place to completely separate science from theology. In his History of Western Philosophy, Bertrand Russell wrote that it's actually the task of philosophy to interpose between science and religion, no matter how contentious that statement may actually be. The lecture following that is Picturing Bodies, describing the natural attraction anatomy had for professional artists and how an illustrative style that encapsulated these dissections was established and then evolved. Some artists exploited dissection in order to improve the quality and verisimilitude of their art. Their approach would reflect the physical benefit of learning how muscle memory characterised the realistic portrayal of human form. By contrast, the anatomical preoccupations of Leonardo were concerned with integrating his discoveries at dissection into an overarching universal theme that ordained painting as the supreme medium of the arts. Before bodies could be preserved, anatomical illustration exposed a natural conflict between anatomist and artist that balanced the needs for accuracy alongside artistic licence. The more figurative anatomical illustration was not produced in a vacuum and it's unsurprising, I think, that it was at its most symbolic just as opera, Shakespearean theatre and ballet emerged. But this anatomy art liaison only remained close until the mid-19th century when the finite limits of dissection of the macroscopic, the so-called gross anatomy, had been reached. Afterwards, anatomist and artists naturally drifted apart. Even before that boundary of major discovery had been reached, the young London anatomist Henry Gray, 1827-1861, had teamed with the illustrator-surgeon Henry van Dyke Carter, 1831-1897, to produce their monumental 1858 work, Henry Gray's Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical. Gone in their illustrations were the allegorical references and the ornamental backgrounds, and in their place was a schematised technique that accurately but rather dispassionately showed the pictorial anatomy of regions of the body. Gray's, as the book is known, became the most successful anatomy textbook worldwide, and its illustrative style has in some manner been reproduced ever since. From Gray's on, and also with the advent of photography and x-rays, there was less dependence by dissectors on an artistic mimicry and anatomical illustration then became the rather formulaic and reproducible product of competent draftsmen. Now it is the province of computer-generated imagery and 3D reconstruction software. In the final lecture of this series... In the overlap between the anatomy and artist, a predictable consequence was for the dissected body itself to take centre stage. That final part, exhibiting bodies, has that aspect of dissection where body parts and the interior of the body are a principal component of an art exhibit, and that area is explored. Artists like anatomists also have the capacity to boldly conquer new territory. Some have used real human material and others the simulacra of tissues and organs, but the effects can be the same. This type of body pageantry is rooted in the mechanisms of body preservation and the inclusion of these remnants into dioramas and sermonising tableau. I suppose if the art historian Sir Norman Rosenthal observed that Quote, the chief task of new art is to disturb the sense of comfort, then this genre which exposes and exploits human dissection for display could rightly claim considerable success. The art of dissecting human corpses has come full circle. It moved from private preserves and became a public spectacle. Afterwards, at least for a while, It then disappeared from view, but once more it has insinuated itself into the galleries and the public imagination.